I enjoy conversion. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. This is the Weekly Roundup, where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. And on today's outstanding panel, returning to the Roundup is Al Cardenas. Al is a nationally recognized Cuban-American leader in law, business, politics, who served in the Reagan and H.W. Bush administrations. He's been recognized as one of the most influential people in Florida politics, and he's also a former chairman of the American Conservative Union and a two-term chairman of the Republican Party of Florida. Al, good morning. It's always great to see you. Welcome back. Yeah, great. Always great to be with you. Also returning to the Roundup is Liz Gilbert Cohen. Liz is a political and government affairs specialist based in Park City, Utah. She's a former executive director of the New Jersey Democratic Party. She's an alum of Governor Phil Murphy's 2017 campaign, and she has worked on the past three DNC conventions, most recently as president of the 2020 DNC. Liz Gilbert Cohen, congratulations on your marriage. (laughs) Good morning. It's great to see you. So good to be with you. Thanks, Ron. We are also joined by my dear friend, senior advisor at the California Latino Economic Institute, my fellow co-founder of the Lincoln Project. He also lectures on race, class, and partisanship at USC, the one and only Mike Madrid. Good to see you, Mike. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Good morning, everybody. This is going to be a good run. On this week's roundup, first, we're going to talk about what you need to know about President Biden's State of the Union address. Then we'll discuss the problems at the border and the looming political showdown over border security. And then we'll discuss the Chinese spy balloon, a new deepfake misinformation campaign China's running, and a New York Times op-ed about co-parenting with the CCP. Finally, for our Politicology Plus subscribers, we're going to discuss a piece in the New York Times about potential Republican presidential candidates focusing on education issues despite mixed results last November. If you want to pull up a chair and join us for that, a Politicology Plus subscription gets you the private and ad-free version of the show with additional episodes that aren't on the public version. There are two ways you can get that. Option one is to sign up directly with us at politicology.com slash plus, and that gets you a link you can listen to in any major podcast player. Option two, if you only listen in the Apple Podcast app, you can navigate to the Politicology show and tap the button there that says try free. And we'll dig in right after this. All right. On Tuesday, President Biden gave his second State of the Union address and for the first time to a divided Congress. The New York Times described the speech as, quote, the start of Biden's reelection campaign, end quote. And there are some specifics I want to dive into in a second. uh, But at a very, very high level, what was your, your reaction to the speech? Give it a grade if you want. Liz, why don't we go around? You start. Oh, I love that. Give it a grade. So I actually, and somewhat surprisingly, I would give it an A. And I give it an A for a few reasons. I think the speech in and of itself was a fantastic speech. I think most importantly, he showed his readiness to run for reelection. And I think anybody doubting his ability or capability to take it to the Republicans, to put up a fight, to have the energy to be strong on his message. I think he showed that he's willing, able, and and very ready to do that. I also love a good political theater moment. And we definitely got a lot of that. I loved actually the interaction. Um, I loved how 
enthusiastic it was, whether you were cheering or booing or heckling or, you know, standing up for applause, there was a lot of interaction. I thought it was a ton of energy in that room. You could tell that people were excited to be back there. And I thought the content of the speech on face value, I would give that an A. We can maybe talk more later about delivery and where I think, you know, we might need some help on that front. Um, but overall, I I was impressed and, and pleasantly surprised. All right. Yeah, we're going to get to a couple of those clips in just a minute. Uh, Al, what was your take? Well, I uh, I thought uh, Joe Biden was particularly at peace uh, during his whole speech, even when he was getting heckled. And uh, it seemed to me like when he got up to that podium, he was in a good place for him. Uh, and it showed during the whole speech. Uh, I think it's a result of his making up his mind that he was going to run for re-election. And so that back and forth in his head was over, which is a big deal. And I believe that he's confident he he can figure out a way to weather these two years. Uh, my sense is that it was uh, in the weeds type of speech, which is why I don't give it an A. Uh, this was not a Kennedy-esque kind of speech where you talk clearly about where the country's headed and how it's going to get there. Uh, there weren't many statements made that were great motivators uh, in terms of, uh, you know, America moving forward in, in, in one direction. Uh, you know, I agree with Liz. He was tough on Republicans. He was, it was a very, very popular speech. If I was part of corporate America, I, I'd be a little worried, uh, because of, uh, took on everybody. And, uh, we can talk about that a little later during the clips, but for the populist side of him, it was kind of these, a chicken in every pot say yes, not just not when to, to his audience and his base. So I'd give him a B. Uh, uh, and I gave him a B because of my prejudgment of Biden's ability to communicate. Uh, so, you know, that, uh, so I went a little easy on him just because I was judging him for Biden, not for the great communicators of all time. Uh, Mike, what do you say? Two thumbs up, two thumbs down, somewhere in the middle. No, I give him two thumbs up. Um, but I'll tell you, I think that there's a little grade inflation with, with these grades because it's the state of the union. You can't screw right. up a state of the union. That's just never happened, right? It, it's the easiest place. Like we, we put a T out there and then the ball and then just say, you know, hit a home run. So if you, if you can't do that there, when can you do it, right? You've got a built-in audience. It's captive. You've got months to build up for the narrative that you're going to write. No one has given, even Donald Trump has never didn't give a bad State of the Union speech. So I think what is important is, as was mentioned, the substance of the speech was really important. Say what you will about the Biden administration. Their list of accomplishments is very long. They've, they've got a lot to be touting. Yeah. I mean, they've yeah. got a lot to talk about. And when you're going into a State of the Union to be talking about actual practical accomplishments from a legislative standpoint, um, this is kind of unprecedented. I mean, they've done so much. Um, now, now you also have an American public where 75% of Americans think we're heading in the wrong direction, right? And it, and it also comes on the heels of this jobs report, which kind of blew everybody's minds. I think, you know, they've created more jobs in two years than any administration has in history in four years. Like, there's this real con conflict in the United States of America between 
where people feel we're heading and where we're actually at, at least by traditional barometers. So it, it's a different it's a different challenge that this president faces. But but the speech itself, I, I mean, like I said, I, I, I thought he did exceptionally well, but but it's built to, to do exceptionally well. This is the one time when a politician gets a complete pass. You've got a built in standing audience. If somebody wants to get up and make a fool of themselves, as is unfortunately becoming common practice, I think it raises the stature of the president. Um, um, and, and I think that happens too. So I, you know, a great speech, great predicate for, for, for running for reelection. I think he's clearly there. I think he should be there. I think this talk about it is, you know, uh, otherwise is nonsense. The, the chatter that sometimes, you know, proliferates in, in Washington, DC. I thought he looked great. I thought he's got a compelling message. I think he's ready for the fight. And I think we're just going to have to wait for the official announcement at this point. Yeah, but what's yeah. your great? Yeah. Uh, I'll give him an A. I mean, okay. A, it's kind of like, you know, it's sure, A. Pass fail. There you go. You're the, okay. you're the nice teacher. You're the nice He's the teacher. nice teacher. Yeah. Let's get into a couple of these clips. Uh, but Liz, as, as you mentioned, uh, lots of commentators have, have likened the atmosphere in the chamber the other night to be more like the English parliament with the customary jeers and shouting because it was yeah. so interactive. There were moments yeah. like that. And the exchange that got the most attention was this back and forth about Medicare and Social Security. So let's take a listen to that. Some of my Republican friends want to take the economy hostage. I get it, unless I agree to their economic plans. All of you at home should know what those plans are. Instead of making the wealthy pay their fair share, some Republicans, some Republicans want Medicare and Social Security to sunset. I'm not saying it's a majority. Let me give you anybody who doubts it, contact my office. I'll give you a copy. I'll give you a copy of the proposal. That means Congress doesn't vote. Well, I'm glad to see you. And I tell you, I, I enjoy conversion. You know, it means if, if Congress doesn't keep the programs the way they are, they'd go away. Other Republicans say, I'm not saying it's a majority of you. I don't even think it's even a significant. But it's being proposed by individuals. I'm not politely not naming them, but it's being proposed by some of you. Look, folks, the idea is that we're not going to be we're, we're not going to be moved into being threatened to default on the debt if we don't respond. Folks. Question really is, uh, you know, what's his political calculus here? Because, you know, if that was a trap laid, it was laid well. And, and I, and I thought it, I thought it worked beautifully for him, regardless of the sort of substantive problem of, uh, trying to decrease the deficit without touching entitlement reform. Right. That's, that's a completely different conversation, but politically I thought this worked, uh, really well. Al, what did you think about the moment? Yeah. You know, I used to think that, uh, Joe Biden and Donald Trump, whenever they went off script, it was a disaster. In this particular place, time, it was a masterpiece. You know, he laid it out. It was truthful. I mean, Rick Scott from my own state had laid out these modifications to entitlement programs. So he had the right to bring it up. And when he got debuted, you know, he uh, he went off script and, uh, and made sure that there was a consensus in the Congress about uh, not touching Social Security and Medicare business, the benefits, and I, I thought he was a master at it. 
and sensing it because he had to sense the moment. He was clearly off script, and uh, and I thought it was well done. Liz, yeah, a, a couple things. I'm I'm glad you played that clip because to Mike's point about putting out the tea and the ball and saying, you know, it's your turn. I understand that presidents are are you know, kind of perfectly set up for a State of the Union address. But Joe Biden often blunders this off script moment. And this is where I was just like, he either did this expertly in practice, or he's just being himself. And this is why he is such a masterful politician, whether people agree with that or not. He just he is by definition. And this moment really highlighted that. I think also the the folks in the chamber, they just they can't help themselves. And so, yes, he kind of, you know, put the rod in the water, but like he got them. He really <laughs> hooked them with this, this back and forth. And, um, you know, something and and I understand my my age um, on this episode, but as a fellow millennial to you, Ron, um, I don't know if this is a millennial or more of a Gen Z thing, but check the receipts, right? It's like this whole idea that like, and the Lincoln Project actually talked about this kind of expertly, the receipts exist. Joe Biden was not going to go out in the State of the Union and say something that he didn't have the proof, the background, the fact-checking, the receipts to put something out there. So when people are shaking their head and booing, you know, Senator Mike Lee from my state of Utah is shaking his head. And then you see on TV, I don't know if it was hours later or the next day, they have him talking about exactly what he was shaking his head against. You know what I mean? Like this stuff exists. TV is real. Social media is real. When you say something in politics now, I think people feel that Donald Trump gave them a pass that you can say one thing and then say another and nobody will know or care or do anything about it. But we have the receipts. And I think Joe Biden, you know, really hooked them pretty masterfully in, in this exchange. Yeah, I thought it was a I thought it was a great move. Mike, I'm curious what you thought about that moment. And then I want to dig in with you to some of the more populist stuff that he talked about in the uh, in the speech. And I've got a clip to tee that up. But first about that moment specifically and what Liz said, you know, like this thing is going to be watched. Two different versions of this speech are going to be watched, right? If you're if you're in the Republican media bubble, you're going to get a different version than if you're in the the Democratic media bubble. Um, but this clip in particular is going to be making the rounds, you know, everywhere, I think. Yeah, look, I think um, it reminds me of that old trap that's used to get a monkey, right? You have a little hole in the board with a banana on the other side, and he monkey sticks his hand in to grab the banana and can't, can't let go, and he'll be stuck there because he's trapped himself. The Republicans can't not take the bait, and they baited him perfectly. I don't think this was extemporaneous. This was completely planned. If it wasn't, they ought to take credit as though it were, because it's pretty obvious. And, you know, the Marjorie Taylor right. Greens of the world cannot help themselves. That's why they're there. And the contrast between the, the Republican conference and the president of the United States could not be clear. So you want to draw that out. You want to make sure that that's the fight that you're having. And again, I think that they did that, did that quite masterfully. I, I, I'm, I'm, I, I think that this, look, I have said for, since Biden was elected, that his best shot at reelection would be a House majority. And, and this is why. This, the theater, the performative nature of the Republican Party um, is, is evident to the American public. And whatever the Democrats are not able to make the case for themselves, the Republicans are going to make for them. And the contrast, and we have to remember, 
People vote against things. They vote against candidates. They don't vote for them. So when you're looking at the popularity numbers of the president, when you're looking at the approval ratings, when you're looking at all these trend lines and all these pundits are, you know, scratching their heads trying to figure out why this doesn't make, why they can't answer why Biden's winning re-election or an Obama's winning re-election or, you know, the answer is very simple. It's, it's, it's contrast. Contrast is what matters in politics. And when you have your opposition that is unpopular with a wide swath of the American public making the contrast for you, well, hell, give them rope. They'll hang themselves. Just keep give them more rope. And that's exactly uh, what the Biden folks did and Biden himself uh, to capture the moment. I thought it was done very, very well. Okay, so CNN described the speech as having, quote, a strain of populism rooted in strengthening the middle class. And I want to I want to dig into this piece of it, because, you know, as I was listening to it, I thought, oh, like, shit, he's talking about a lot of the stuff that Trump was talking about a long time ago. He's doing it with a very similar language. Um, He used phrases like we need to reward work, not just wealth. He emphasized new policies to use American-made products in federal infrastructure projects. And he spoke directly to people watching at home who felt left behind. Here's what he said. Tonight, I'm announcing new standards require all construction materials used in federal infrastructure projects to be made in America. Made in America. I mean it. Lumber, glass, drywall, fiber optic cable. And on my watch, American roads, bridges, and American highways are going to be made with American products as well. Folks, my economic plan is about investing in places and people that have been forgotten. So many of you listen to me tonight. I know you feel it. So many of you felt like you've just simply been forgotten. Amid the economic upheaval of the past four decades, too many people have been left behind and treated like they're invisible. Maybe that's you watching from home. Remember the jobs that went away. You remember them, don't you? The folks at home remember them. You wonder whether the path even exists anymore for your children to get ahead without having to move away. Well, that's why I get that. That's why we're building an economy where no one's left behind. Jobs are coming back. Pride is coming back. Because choices we made in the last several years. You know, this is, in my view, a blue-collar blueprint to rebuild America and make a real difference in your lives at home. Pride is coming back. Mike, we've talked a lot about the realignment that's happening with working class voters across racial and ethnic backgrounds. And, uh, you know, I want to, I want to get your take on how messaging like this from Biden helps Democrats regain ground with these voters. Who was he talking to? Well, I mean, this was straight Trump language, right? And, and if you dial it back, it's actually kind of even Clinton language when we started to see some of the early losses in manufacturing and some of these, you know, rural communities, especially blue-collar, non-college-educated voters. The Democrats are in trouble. They're losing blue-collar workers at a rate faster than they have in the history of the party. And there's just kind of this uh, um, lack of awareness, because I think it's their history as a party. They are no longer viewed as a working-class party by the working class. Like they, they, They just kind of assume that that's who they are. 
and that government spending somehow on an infrastructure plan is going to get uh, working class folks back. That's not true. The good news is the Biden folks have figured this out. And if you're starting to look at some of the messaging, we talked about the Ruben Gallegos ad, this is all blue collar stuff where the the Democratic Party is finding its roots again and realizing there are not enough white college educated voters to win elections anymore. We have to make the adjustment and, and they are, at least in rhetoric. Here's where it's going to get tricky. This type of a policy program, and at some point, he's going to have to back up what he just said in terms of construction and building and, and manufacturing to do all this stuff. That's what the blue-collar backbone of this country is that he's talking about. And if he's serious about it, and he said, I mean it, the way Joe Biden does, this is going to set up a massive conflict with the environmentalists and the environmental community. Where in, in almost every state of the union, there is a bitter, bitter rivalry between the building and construction trades and people who work with their hands and those unions, which are central to the Democratic coalition, and the increasingly powerful, wealthier uh, uh, environmental community. They are at complete odds with one another, and this is going to determine the the breadth of support that the Democratic Party will or will not have in the future. Biden is betting, and I think it's smart politics that they can get back into the game with working class voters. By the way, one quick caveat. They've lost they've lost the white working class. They've lost the white blue collar worker. The Democrats will not get them back in this lifetime. The Tim Ryans of the world, the Klobuchar's of the world, they're speaking to an audience that does not exist anymore. It is the fastest shrinking demographic and the Democrats because of who they are demographically think that that's where they've needed to go. That was all of the diner conversations that the New York Times was having, trying to understand why white people don't feel happy in America anymore if you don't have a college degree. That's not where the problem is at. Their problem is with the Hispanic blue-collar worker. That's where they're losing votes the fastest. That's where they're going to have to double down, and that's why they're going to have to start looking at messengers like Ruben Gallegos in Arizona, like an Alex Padilla in California, like a Cortez Masto in Nevada that can carry that message in a way that is much more compelling. I want to quickly um, wrap up the State of the Union segment, but before I do, um, Liz, can you? How do you see the internal Democratic Party politics playing out over the dynamic that Mike just laid out between the environmentalist lobby, which you're intimately familiar with, and and obviously the political reality of winning another re-election campaign? I was just saying to Mike offline. I was giving him a round of applause because I couldn't. Um, agree with his summary anymore. I think he laid that out um, pretty perfectly to the point about, you know, the, let's call them the the climate folks, right. And and how that's all going to go down. I don't think Joe Biden would introduce policy or concept or rhetoric without being prepared for all of the dynamics that come with a reelection. And so, you know, I, I think we've already mentioned um, here in our in our discussion that it was a very calculated state of the union. And so I think that, you know, goes into all aspects, including as he was talking about the being built in America, made in America, all of that. It was just I found myself like cheering along and I found myself very excited about it, full well knowing that he's going to have to roll out a robust plan that also talks about 
you know, the existential threat of climate change. I think he is a president and he has a team around him who full well know that they are gearing up for reelection and you don't say one thing without being prepared for what comes next. And so I do think that the administration must expertly be prepared for those discussions because they cannot attack this on their own. They're going to need all segments of the Democratic Party and all, you know, all of these different avenues to really come together in one confluence to be to be ready um, for this action. So it will be that is something definitely to to watch is how he is going to take this call to action to this moment of unity across all of these different sectors. So I'm I'm looking forward to to seeing that because he's someone who knows that he has no other choice but to do so. I'll I'll give you my take on it. I I've always thought Joe Biden was more of a Hubert Humphrey kind of Democrat in terms of uh, his populist, pro-labor, pro-whatever regime. I was disappointed that he didn't take it to a higher level because I think one of the very fundamental problems in America is a rising wage gap. And I just didn't think he spent a quality time that a president looking at things at that level should be talking about. Uh, I also, as a Reagan Republican, uh, you know, rejected a lot of Pat Buchanan's comments, which frankly were very similar to what Joe Biden did yesterday. And my concern has always been, what's the cost of living in America going to be like for the average person? Uh, I'm not entirely a globalist, and I realize that a lot of national security issues have come about over the last decade, but I am someone who understands economics, I believe. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of, there's a high cost involved when you're an isolationist and, uh, and, uh, you know, Biden is not, in my opinion, as sensitive to the risks involved to our cost of living, inflation, everything else. When he talks about, you know, being such an isolationist and, uh, and this problem with China will get worse, uh, rather than better, you know, our biggest, uh, peace making abilities with China had to do with trade. Uh, we're fighting China tooth and nail about decreasing our trade with them, which automatically increases the military challenges or national security challenges we will have. So I am much more careful uh, forgetting the politics. I think Mike and Liz have the politics right, but I, I'm just talking about looking at things from a global affair, from a national securities affair, from a cost of living affair, a global uh, anti-globalism is a dangerous threat to our national security and to our cost of living domestically. And I'm concerned about heading in that direction. I want to talk about the border. So on Tuesday, federal border officials testified before the House Committee on Oversight and Accountability the hearing was the latest move by Republicans and what they've promised is going to be an aggressive push to scrutinize Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas that could result in his impeachment. Um, Republicans have been pledging to impeach him since before the midterms, actually. But that hearing barely brought up Mayorkas and focused on blaming Biden for the situation at the border. Uh, as of last November, there were 6,000 to 7,000 people crossing the U.S.-Mexico border every day. Um, if the Trump era Title 42 policy ends, that number is expected to increase to 14,000. Uh, but the number of undocumented migrants crossing the border in January sunk to its lowest number in two years at under 130,000 for the month. 
the Times is also reporting that Republicans are eyeing immigration as a winning political strategy in the 2024 presidential election. Um, so I wonder, you know, it, by the way, we should mention during the State of the Union, uh, McCarthy had to shush his own conference when they jeered at Biden uh, and and talking about his plan to codify citizenship for dreamers, people brought to the United States as children. Um, so, you know, I want to think a little bit about how we should expect the political physics of immigration policy and rhetoric um, to shift as we experience this realignment of voters we've been witnessing. Mike, you want to lead off on that? Sure. I think it's important to understand that this moment in time is a little bit different politically than it has been over the course of the past 25 or 30 years. So for the past couple of decades, both political parties have benefited by the stalemate uh, and and the high-pitched immigration fight. Republicans have been working to kind of stir their white nativist base. Donald Trump most specifically was able to get low-propensity white rural voters to perform in terms of turnout at a rate unseen before really in, in modern history, largely by chanting build a wall, blaming Mexicans for being drug dealers and rapists, and the fentanyl crisis, and attacking uh, immigrants for invading America. But it's also really important to understand that the Democrats have benefited equally by simply saying Republicans are a bunch of racists and a bunch of bad guys. Republicans have made it very easy but politically, it's a tool that both parties have used to inspire and motivate their base. Here's why this moment is different. That is no longer working for the Democrats. The Democrats have reached marginal returns, and in fact, they're losing Hispanic voters, especially in border communities, because there is no policy solution that the Democrats have offered. And the attacks that Republicans have levied at Democrats for the past couple of decades have been this open border argument which are visceral and they're damaging. And I don't think the Democrats understand how much that impacts them because Democrats have just said, whatever, as long as we can call you guys racists and get Hispanics to vote for us at the turnout numbers that we need, we're still winning 75, 25, or 70, 30. Well, now that those numbers are 60, 40 and getting worse for the Democrats, there's a real problem where they're going to have to start putting up specific policy proposals. So the entire environment of immigration politics has completely changed. And I believe the onus is now on the Democrats to do something. And the opportunity to win this fight is very real, not just from a policy perspective, but from the politics of this. It requires something that's very, very uncomfortable for the Democrats, and that is to actually put together a plan on border security. Let me say that again. Every, every road to immigration reform has always begun with increased border security. That's where the vast majority of voters are at. That's where Hispanics are at in terms of a majority. That's where everybody's at except for some of the loudest voices in the Democratic coalition. So they're going to have to begin with border security. And the more you put that out there, you can also get a legitimate clean pathway to citizenship and the dreamer issues that you want. One amazing thing about this all three of those elements, all three of those enjoy overwhelming support of the American people. They just piss off the angry bases of both parties and both constituencies. But the Democrats, again, who I think are figuring out they're losing working class people, are also starting to realize they can't just operate at a stalemate and get the turnout that they need amongst Hispanic voters on this issue alone anymore. It does not work. It's not the 1990s anymore. They're going to have to make the adjustment, get into a border security position, and start 
communicating it that way. And, and in fact, you look at these Arizona uh, Southwestern Democrats get this. They do this. Even Hispanics, too. The Rio Grande Valley, you've got border Democrats saying it. You've got Mark Kelly in Arizona, who did it masterfully in his reelection effort last time for the Senate. California Democrats have been saying this for 20 years. It's this, this, concentra- this demographic concentration of Democrats that feel they can't speak about race in a way that would be any way upsetting right. for people. And the the funny part is it's not upsetting. <laughs> right. It's what people are demanding. And they're gonna have to lean into that, or they are, or the Republicans actually can win and win significantly on this because the Democrats have left themselves so, so exposed. Yeah. And and you know, it's it, it's important to understand we saw this at the speech last night when he acknowledged uh, you know, if you're not gonna pass my whole immigration package, at least pass the part that uh, that, that funds more border security agents so that we can start to fix this problem. Right. He said that. And that was the part where McCarthy had to shush his own people for jeering him when he, you know, said that. So, uh, yeah, I, I think that's worth keeping in mind. Um, uh, Al, this week, Florida's state legislature is in a special session. And one of the three topics they're discussing is funding for uh, Governor DeSantis's efforts to send migrants to other cities and states, even if they've never set foot in Florida, um, you know, the, and everyone will remember the, you know, the, his uh, stunt to have migrants flown from San Antonio, Texas to Martha's Vineyard, um, and then this new law would allow Florida to spend money to move migrants in Florida or other states to sanctuary cities or states. That's according to the Orlando Sentinel. So. What are your expectations for how these stunts will continue as we get deeper into, you know, potential Republican presidential primary territory? Well, so far, most of the provocative stuff that the legislature and the governor have passed has been declared uh, illegal or unconstitutional by the courts. Uh, There's no doubt in my mind that that bill, when passed, will be challenged, and I uh, know that folks are going to be challenging it, and it'll be found unconstitutional. The state has no authority to move people uh, uh, around uh, other jurisdictions. I mean, just not within the uh, not within the constitutional powers of a state. And so, you know, this Southern Poverty Center uh, is waiting for the law to be passed, and then it'll be challenged in federal court. And I think that the law will be found illegal. In the meantime, It'll give the governor a little bit to show, you know, his his uh, strong points on this. But I'll tell you what, I I was so disappointed. Uh, just, well, I'm a spent a lot of my life trying to get immigration reform done, and I've gotten to the altar a couple of times, uh, but but no no dice. But now in America, you know, this was a social rights issue, a civil rights issue. Now, in my opinion, it's a you know economic issue. The president can't really talk about it because he brags about a full employment. So he can't tell the nation that we're five or 10 million workers short. Uh, We are. And there's no way you can increase a country's GDP in order to fight off a bit of a debt ceiling or debt deficit unless you have more work output. And you can't have more work output without more workers. And so our GDP is going to be below 2%, which is going to be below uh, inflation. Uh, for a long time until the president and Congress links the shortage of workers to the inflation and to the challenges we're having. And uh, a big chunk of inflation, it's not just uh, the Fed's work. It's a work of having a, a need for so many more workers. It affects your uh, food products pricing. It affects pricing everywhere. 
and uh, and we're not able to compete with the rest of the world like the president wants to unless we have the workers to do the job. If he claims that we're at full employment, how can he then claim that we can take on all this additional work that we're exporting without additional workers? Who's going to do the work? And so, you know, I don't think he was responsible about discussing this connection during his speech. I thought his speech was too political to interfere with facts. And uh, that's a shame. I mean, I, I like to get from the White House an understanding of the linkage between immigration reform and the short filling the shortage of a labor and being truthful about how short we're in labor in America. Yeah. Liz is nodding and wagging her finger in agreement. Liz, I was going to ask you <laughs> to bring to, you know, to bring us home on this topic because as Mike pointed out, this, you know, the the um it is it is visceral when you when you explain to people that the, the low water mark is 130,000 people coming across the border in a single month that's right. the low water right. mark you know uh yeah. so i I'd, I'd love for you to especially you know to your point that biden doesn't roll out something like this unless he intends to follow through right uh if he's serious yeah. about yep. border agents getting funding uh and stepping into this territory in a, in an intentional way is he going to follow through? And and to Al's point about the you know the connection between economic growth, jobs, and immigration, are they prepared to go there? Oh my God, I feel like we could spend um, at least an hour <laughs> just on this topic. So I'll try and be brief. But I was nodding along uh, quite aggressively during both Mike and Al's comments. Um, as Mike was talking, my my head nodding came to the point of. Is the immigration discussion, is the border discussion at this point a PR issue? No one knows how to talk about it. No one knows how to say this side is right, this side is wrong. These are the facts. This is like, there's so much confusion. And to Mike's point about how this was beneficial to both political sides, we are getting to the point where that confusion, I think, is making the voters not understand how this will play out in um, in an election cycle. Again, to my point, I don't think the Biden administration is saying anything in that speech that they can't follow, which is why I believe he had almost what I would call the self the self-deprecating comment of, and if you're not going to meet me on immigration, at least fund what I need for, you know, additional border security, et cetera. So adding that line in was very intentional because he's like, this Congress is not going to meet me where I need them on immigration. I'm going to have to carry this entire mantle myself on my reelection platform and get people to buy into what I'm saying and believing what I'm saying all on my own. But at minimum, I want that win out of this Congress. And he said it. And I think the way that after he had this entire soliloquy, the section, you know, about the border to just insert that line, I think was very intentional. So to me, that shows, yes, he needs to follow through on something and we'll work aggressively on that. For Al's point, and this is where I honestly could go off for hours, the staffing crisis in this country is so unbelievably important in a way that is not getting any oxygen. And I was so disappointed that um, there was not that connection in the State of the Union. So, Al, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, Ron, as, as you well know, um, I do government affairs for the long-term care industry. And so the, that translation is I do nursing home politics. And one of the biggest issues in the industry, probably the biggest issue in the industry, is that there is not enough of a workforce, there is not enough labor to keep the entire network of long-term care facilities 
operating in a way that we really need with the aging of the baby boomers, et cetera. And so a big push that I find that we have, and again, could talk about this for for hours, but um, a big push that the industry is focusing on right now is not just going to Capitol Hill or going to the White House and saying, you know, we need more staff. It's even talking to the State Department about immigration, about visas. Like this has to be comprehensive immigration reform. Yes, for the border, but also for so many industries that are drastically understaffed right now that are really, really going to suffer if we don't figure it out soon. It's amazing how once you start poking into an issue, you realize how connected it is to everything else. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, the in the minds of most Americans, when we talk about needing more workers, and the only avenue is immigration. All they're thinking about is that we're going to bring another five or 10 million people illegally through the border. And that's just automatically what engages in Americans' minds. And so, you know, border security is important before people start understanding the consequences of not having more workers. And Absolutely. so I, you know, we, we've got to get it yeah. done. Mike, you're leaning in. We don't have a choice. We don't have a choice yeah. anymore. Yeah. So. I, I just think politically the great irony is we have this aging white population that re- makes up the largest base of resistance to immigration reform when those are precisely the people whose social security checks will be paid by yeah. young immigrant brown workers and will be taking care of them in nursing homes and will be paying all of the government's tax base yeah. that makes the largesse of what the baby boomer population <laughs> grew and made pop possible. It, the irony just doesn't escape me. It's just so, I, like, so completely all this, American. All the snaps. I know, I'm just all the like, snaps. Like, <laughs> go off, <Yeah>. Mike. <laughs> no, because, I, Mike, you use the word irony, but it's also, you know, it's this PR issue. Like, no one is messaging this right. correctly. And if people would just listen to politicology <laughs> and listen to the preaching Mike Madrid. <laughs> you say it so clearly in a way that it really needs to be out there. Like these, these ironic issues are so very clear. And um, this is the kind of work that I'm truly hoping to to see addressed and accomplished in, in this presidential cycle. Yeah. At least talked about. <laughs> well, not fixing this is uh, as, uh, you know, is as understanding of the problems in America as anything else. It's so rational. It's so easy to resolve. We get this, you know, 20 smart people in a room, 10 on either side, and uh, and get it worked out. It is not a hard thing to work out. What's a problem in America is that politics are coming before the country or principles. And, I, uh, and we have a shrinking center left and center right. Uh, in the 1950s, the center left, center right was 50% of Congress. Now it's about 10, 12%. And so without a healthier center left, center right in Congress, it's very hard to predict that anything significant will happen. There have been a couple news stories over the last few weeks that show that China is percolating in the American zeitgeist. Um, so last Thursday, news broke that a Chinese-operated spy balloon uh, was flying over the United States. This made headlines everywhere. It raised serious concerns about Chinese spying efforts on the United States. And Secretary of State Anthony Blinken called it a uh, clear violation of U.S. sovereignty and international law. The balloon was then shot down on Saturday off the coast of South Carolina once military commanders determined uh, taking it down wouldn't cause undue risk to Americans. This week, 
New York Times revealed that China has become the first nation to create deep fake videos of fictitious news hosts as part of a misinformation campaign aimed at undermining the United States with English-speaking viewers. And this comes a couple weeks after the New York Times published an op-ed by a mother of two titled, China Helped Raise My American Kids and They Turned Out Fine. This mother raised concerns about the overbearing co-parenting of the CCP, including getting uh, lectured by her daughter's kindergarten on how many hours her daughter should sleep, what she should eat, and her optimal weight. But she also praised the CCP's heavy censorship for creating a kid-friendly internet and the national restrictions on how long young people can be online playing video games. She also said that the surveillance state created its own kind of freedom. That's a quote, its own kind of freedom. And I just thought this was really bizarre for the Times to publish this piece. Um, And so I wanted to sort of take everybody's temperature about this increase in cultural awareness of China um, and how that's impacting the political climate, because I see it only rising. Mike, you want to lead off? Oh, so much to say about China. Um, Yeah, look, this is all, look, the geopolitics of this obviously thread back uh, a long time. Um, but I think what's most important to understand is China's strategy here is very different than what we saw from the Russians and the way that they are approaching the geopolitical situation is completely different. And and I know this will probably make a lot of heads explode, but I think the most authoritative book on this idea of China's approach is called On China by Henry Kissinger. It's a, it's a masterful piece of understanding what is occurring at this moment. And I'm sure you'll get a lot of pushback because of who the author is, but I don't care. Henry Kissinger is brilliant. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a lesson on what we need to understand about the Chinese mindset strategically. In a nutshell, it basically says this. The, the idea that Russia is, uh, you know, was influencing our, and has been influencing and undermining democracies for the better part of a decade is really bilateral. The idea that they were buying ads on Facebook and using existing systems to influence and undermine democracy, including the 2016 and 2020 elections, is, 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 is known. It's documented. There's evidence for it. The way the Chinese do it is they literally build the platforms first. And so TikTok is is the devil. Let me just say it right now. TikTok is the is if there's if there's a Trojan horse out there, if there's a way we're going to lose this, it's going to be TikTok because the Chinese are like we're not going to just influence on the existing platforms. We're going to create our own platform and make it the most popular platform in the globe, which they have done, and then have the technologies to actually have people who are already addicted to the platform have no choice. And there there's no guardrails. There are a few guardrails on Facebook. There are none on TikTok. Okay, and it is perfectly made for what is going to happen in the coming weeks and or months as we get closer to the presidential campaign. So I am extremely concerned about what is going to happen because China is getting more aggressive in a way that the Chinese do not and have not historically. To understand China, you have to understand that China is not an aggressor nation. China does not take on bilateral conflict. They are not a warring people that have built through expansion. What China does is it slowly envelops their enemy, and then in one fell swoop, it swallows them. And to watch this unfold is is horrifying and frightening, but entirely predictable. And that is exactly what is going on at this moment in time. It is a much bigger, much greater threat than the Russians in the in the Donbass or or on on Facebook are to us at this moment. And I'm not downplaying the Russian threat. I think it's extremely concerning. 
But holistically, China has the opportunity and has been implementing a strategy for decades now to swallow, if not the United States of America and the West, then the entire globe. And they're they're very well positioned to do that. And that's what I think we need to be mindful of. Al, what's your read? Yeah, I, you know, look, I've been uh, reading about, I can't say I'm the ultimate expert on China, but I've read so much about it especially because of its history of thousands of years and uh, the rise and fall of empires uh, you also follow. That's the one country that never did it. If it wasn't because we didn't have a way to get around, uh, history would have shown China to be the superior country during the times that, you know, the, the Dutch, the English, the French, and everybody else was deemed as most powerful nations in the world. Well, they were never as strong as China. The only thing that the world didn't know is what, what was all about China because of uh, limitations of getting there and knowing it. But China, with Confucius and everything else, their culture has never changed in thousands of years. They've always accepted centralized government, which is why trying to th- hope that China someday becomes democratic because of a growing middle class is foolish. Uh, their culture is far superior to, you know, monetary changes. Uh, the... Uh, the Chinese suffered this horrible, uh, a, you know, era of uh, shame during the 1800s. They that has shaped their policies right after World War II until now. You know, between Mao and uh, and his successor, and now Ying, who's been around for a long time. I think they're committed to uh, making sure that never have an age of shame again, and uh, they are committed now to making sure that. Uh, that no country disrespects them. And uh, we have to understand what that means. And we also have to understand that their timeline is not the 2024 elections as it is the United States. Their timelines is where's the world going to be in 25, 50, or 100 years from now. And they think they have an understanding of all of that. And I think they're building to, number one, make sure that nobody can be superior to them in the future, in the future ahead. And number two, that uh, they're in order for them to have what they want, they're going to be probably a little more aggressive than they've been in the past. Uh, look, they lost a lot of territory to Japan and to Russia in previous uh, previous wars in the last couple of hundred years, and they're not about to do that. To the, when we look at Hong Kong and when we look at Macau and when we look at uh, Taiwan, we're thinking as the West of China being aggressive and trying to take over nations. The Chinese say, hey, these were our these were our territories and somebody took them from us. So we look at life very differently and it's going to get far more complicated, especially if we lose the uh, if, if we lose the uh, ability to uh, economically challenge China. And uh, if we become more and more isolationist, and uh, take away a lot of our trade, our relationship with China is going to get more aggressive, not less. Yeah, it is important to read this commitment to build and uh, rebuild America by buying American in the context of our trade with China. Um, Also, you know, Liz, throughout this whole balloon saga, which really just captivated the attention of Americans, China's Foreign Ministry of Affairs has claimed the balloon was a civilian airship, called the U.S. response and overreaction. 
But, uh, you know, what the Chinese government saying to its own people makes it difficult for them to understand why we reacted the way we did. And uh, and when you mix the potential use of uh, deep fakes, which I mentioned, right, um, uh, how, how do you see the dissonance between what the U.S. and China are saying impacting diplomatic relations? And, and you know, what is how should we read the Biden administration's posture toward China? First, I don't think anybody here in America believes that it was a weather surveillance tool. Um, I, I, I don't. Either side of the aisle, all the way to the right, all the way to the left, like I think this kind of got everybody a little pissed off, right? And it, and to your point, the way that you introduced this um, topic saying, you know, it's made the, the, let's call it air quotes, the China issue. Um, it, it's brought it into the homes and the Twitter feeds and the TikTok feeds. I think, um, of everybody. And so people really do know what's going on. Um, this morning, actually, the House unanimously approved a resolution con- uh, condemning China for the spy balloon, saying that it was a brazen violation of U.S. sovereignty. And so that just happened today. And I think this is not the last of what we will see out of Washington as as they are dealing with this issue. Um, if I may just go on a, a slight uh, China tangent here, something that I was um, actually reading about this morning um, is that last week the in China, the government's healthcare system announced a plan to get insurance to cover fertility treatments. And this is really interesting to me because last year, China's population fell for the first time in 60 years. And so now... China is back on its, again, I I know, I feel like this whole episode, I've been talking about this like PR kick, but that's kind of what politics and policy is right now is who has the best messaging and and kind of the best um, hand-to-hand combat tactics. Um, China is really focused on regrowing uh, its population. And I think we all need to pay attention to this because it is not... Um, just about the spy balloon as it's becoming more mainstream. So this was in in the skim, yeah, which yeah. is you know the daily newsletter that's going out to people who aren't getting the Hill and the New York Times and the Washington Post reports like that's like all of point. us every morning. But I think for the skim to be highlighting this issue with China's in- increased kind of effort again on the fertility front, you know, talking about how so long ago it was the one child right. policy, and now because the population is aging out and it fell. China is now freaking out, saying we can't we can't have less less people, less humans, less capital, less resources. And so I think we need to pay attention to what is going on in China on all fronts, whether you are politically engaged or not, to to Mike's point and to Al's. I mean, it's it's going to impact all of our lives in a way that we all, I think, really need to be paying more attention than we already are. Yeah. It's it's no longer the one child policy, it's now the three child policy. They, now they want everybody to have three kids. Well, India pretty soon is going to have more people than China, their bordering neighbor. That's uh, pretty shocking. Who, whoever talks about India having more people than anybody else? And in my opinion, it will be to India's detriment uh, and not to China's in, in a race to see the most populous country in the world. Now that we're up to speed on some of the biggest stories this week, let's take a minute to talk about what you're watching uh, under the radar or wherever it falls. Uh, Al, what do you got? Well, the future of Bitcoin. Uh, and I'll tell you, I've gone oh, through Oh, you're two bringing or three. the Bitcoin? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, come on, man. Uh, the, uh, well, as a Floridian, 
you know, so much of it had to do with FDX and everything that's going on. But why am I bringing up Bitcoin? Because the U.S. Uh, uh, currency is now for the first time being talked about as not like the most secure thing in the world. The world has always had one key currency. And uh, ours, and, and for the last, you know, since the 19, since World War I, the U.S. currency has been number one. Uh, that's not a long time. Uh, before that, it was the British, and before that, it was the Dutch. And so now there's more uncertainty about the U.S. debt, and therefore the value of our currency as being the world's currency. And I always thought, you know, if this thing keeps turning south, the whole world may start considering Bitcoin as a safer bet than some of these currencies, which is crazy. Uh, but uh, But I always thought, that it might be an interesting backstop. Now I'm not too sure. I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, you know, this FTX thing threw me for a loop. And uh, But yet Bitcoin's been rising in value in spite of all the bad news. And so where it goes and what impact it has on the value of our currency, it's interesting to me to watch. <laughs> you, you just warmed my heart, Al. You yeah. don't even know. And Mike yeah. is sitting here laughing because we have had hours and hours and hours of conversation about exactly this subject. <laughs> sorry, I missed it. The, I, I just sorry, love that I it's Al Cardenas. Yeah. When, when Al Cardenas has become the Bitcoin proponent, it's like everything it is just completely the, like the, the reserve status of the U.S. dollar is right. <laughs> being threatened by a technology that cannot be controlled. And I and like. Yeah. By the way, yeah. <laughs> uh, I've got this terrific conversation coming up um, about exactly the FTX uh, SBF thing um, with two fantastic guests. So that'll be out in a few weeks, um, and 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 the and the long-awaited uh, mythological crypto series uh, for <laughs> politicology. It's still in the wings. It's just. Um, we're we haven't we haven't quite got there yet, but it's it's still coming. I'm so glad you brought that up, Al. Yeah. Good one. Yeah. Liz, what do you got? Mine is um is way more generic. Um, and for me, it's what is the 2024 cycle going to be about? Is it going to be a culture war? Are we talking jobs and economy? Like what what is going to kind of reign supreme on the campaign trail as as the you know, reelect, let's say, is is about to be launched. And what is going to be the platform? What surrogates are we going to see come out of the woodworks? Who who is Joe Biden going to try and bring up behind him? Who's going to be out on the campaign trail? I'm just I'm I'm excited that it's coming up soon so we can all have kind of a better understanding of with what tone um the president will will launch his reelect. Um I think when we saw him we didn't discuss this during the State of the Union uh, portion, but just the Sarah Huckabee oh, Sanders yeah. response. And I was watching it with my parents and you know my mom well, and she was screaming at the TV, turn it off. Why are we listening to this? And I said, we have to listen to this because we need yep. to know what their position is. Yep. We need to know what the Republicans are already throwing down. And so when she's talking about um, you know, her age, not that she's running for president, yeah. we don't think, but she's already talking about, I'm the youngest governor, I'm 40 we know that this is going to be an election about age. She brings up the woke agenda. You know, how often are they going to talk about 
you know, being woke and the woke agenda. I think Chris Murphy actually had one of the best rebuttals to that, which is, is, is reducing inflation, a woke agenda is lowering the cost of insulin, a woke agenda. Like I don't understand what she's saying, but I think what I'm really watching is the little like drops that we are getting in every interview, in every segment that is really going to help us determine what this election is going to be about. And I remember, you know, watching you both, um, you know, so closely during the 2020 election. And it was, is it going to be an election about culture or an election about COVID or what's it going to be? And that so determines the PR, right? I know that's, again, what I've been talking about all episode, but it's all about the verbiage, the language, the PR, and who's going to win that battle. Because do I believe it's going to be an election that comes down to accomplishments and policy? I do not. And so looking at the different culture points and what is coming up um, or not even being talked about, um, that's that's kind of what I'm monitoring at this point. Very good. Mike? I'm watching um, an issue that has really defined politics for so much of this country's history, but is probably one of the more boring issues, and that is uh, water. The Colorado River has basically been tapped out. There are six states that are about to go uh, through an Armageddon-style battle over who's going to get some of the last remaining drops of this water that will determine the lives of probably 22 million Americans. Um, it's in the, you know, Colorado feeds Southern California, which is a desert, uh, Arizona, which is a desert, um, New Mexico, uh, Utah, Colorado. I mean, the, all, the entire region has been made possible because of this flowing river and with climate change and just an enormous amount of of reliance for a hundred years on this river. Uh, it's essentially tapped out and those water rights are becoming more expensive. Hedge funds and venture capitalists are moving in to dramatically increase the price of that water. Um, at the same time, um, it's, it's, it's drying up. And so there's going to be major battles in the coming days and or weeks. This battle is imminent uh, in the court legal system, as well as in the court of public opinion as to where we should be apportioning water. And it's a real precursor of battles to come as our climate changes and as resources thin out, especially where we have built civilizations that are not designed to have many, many millions of people in them. Um, and so I'm watching very closely because the way the courts determine this fight and politically, the way politicians are going to have to side between the states um, is going to have extraordinarily long-term significant impacts on how we build out the country over the coming days, weeks, and decades as, as our climate changes. Well said. Yeah. And coming soon on politicology, we're going to dig into that a lot more. All right, gang, let's flip over to politicology plus where we're going to talk about a piece in the New York times about how Republicans are honing in on education issues as they head toward the presidential primary. Uh, where can everybody find you on the internet, Al? Hard to find me on the internet because I temporarily withdrew from social media, which I can explain ah. later. But they can they can Good email me at ac <laughs> at cardnessinvestors.com. Happy to get any email thoughts, and I may get back to you that way. Beautiful. Liz? I, I regret to say I'm following suit. I am, I'm off Twitter. I'm, I'm uh, one of those. I, I uh, got rid of the Twitter, uh, but I, I am on Instagram at Liz Gilbert Cohen for personal uh, activities and, and fun, fun adventures. How about you, Mike? I'm on Mastodon at Mike Madrid at C.im. <laughs> and I'm uh, 
still reluctantly on Twitter, but I'm having a, you know, I don't, I need to get rid of um, a lot of the time that I spend on social media. I need to, I'm having a strained relationship with uh, social media and it's just taking up way too much time and I'm sort of recognizing it now. So you will find me less and less and less. <laughs> on, on social media, but well, I've reduced my social media time to reading, reading incredibly interesting yeah. books, and uh, it was a wise move I, on my I, part. I'm gonna, I'm gonna talk to you about that offline, Al. But for listeners, you can email <laughs> us um, uh, podcast at politicology dot com, and uh, we do love hearing from you. I read everything that comes in, and we often use the stuff you send us for the show. So, uh, yeah, you can find me there. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.